lab mates and welcome to the stem lab podcast where we highlight women in stem that is science technology engineering and math especially women of color i'm your host dr sabrina walthall and it's that time again to talk with our resident nurse lashawn palmer as she brings us the mental health report for 2022. Hey, LaShawn, and welcome to the podcast. I know. We're so happy to have you back again for the quarterly report. As always, we try and make sure that our audience understands that mental health is a serious thing and that we have someone on our staff, LaShawn Calvin RN, who's here to help us through each quarter. Uh, As always, as we did last year, we started out the year with a mental health report for, or the state of mental health report for the year. And just as we did last year for 2021, we want to start out with that same report for 2022. And so we're going to start ourselves out with just some of the key findings from that report. So LaShawn, I'll hand it over to you and let you begin with that. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, so we're going to kick this session off. Um, so we're actually going to be talking about some key findings from the, what we call the MHA, which is the Mental Health America. Um, the actual website is mhanational.org. So they have some key findings that we're going to talk about today, um, about mental health across America. We're going to talk about the different stats, um, between adults and the youth and going to talk about different um, policies under the public policy and statements and talk about their call to action as well. So I just want to start off with a couple of uh, 2022 key findings. I'm going to start with the adult population. So in 2019, just prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, about 20% of adults experienced a mental illness, which is basically equivalent to about a nearly 50 million Americans. And then when we're talking about suicidal ideation, um, so suicide continues to increase among adults in the U.S. So about, according to the findings, about 4.58% of adults report having serious thoughts of suicide, wow. um, which is like an increase of about 665,000 people from mm-hmm. last year's data set. And then the national rate of suicidal ideation among adults have increased every year since 2011 and 2012, which is a big jump. Right. Um, this was a larger increase than seen in last year's report. Um, going into the just going into the pandemic, um, also over half of adults with a mental illness do not re- do not receive treatment, and that totals over mm-hmm. 27 million adults in the U.S. who are going untreated. So you having 27 million adults in the U.S. who are not getting treated at all with mental health, who's out there fighting depression, fighting anxiety, and things mm-hmm. like that. And 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 when you don't get it treated, that makes it you know a lot worse for them. Right. And the percentage of adults with a mental illness who report unmet need for treatment has increased every year since 2011. So in 2019, about 25% of adults with a mental illness reported unmet need for treatment, which is what we're going to talk about later on. We'll talk about um, access and available. Okay. So those are the stats, mostly for, for adults. Um, Okay, and I have some of the stats for the youth because, of course, um, when adults are affected, youth are also affected, and especially during this pandemic. So some of the key findings for the youth, it shows that a growing percentage of youth in the U.S. live with major depression. About 15% of youth experience a major depressive episode in the past year, 
uh, a 1.24% increase from the last year's data. So that just goes to show you that um, we're still in a pandemic and depression among youth is still rising. It states over 2.5 million youth in the U.S. have severe depression and multiracial youth are at greater risk. 10.6% of youth in the U.S. have severe major depression, uh, depression that severely affects their functioning. And the rate of severe depression has been highest among youth who identify with one race or more. And so that says a lot about what we uh, need to focus on. I mean, sometimes we don't think about students who are born in biracial homes and the tension that has been caused by all of the civil unrest during the pandemic as well and how that might be affecting them. Um, <clears throat> because, of course, they have to see themselves in sometimes both dynamics of being in a home that is under the civil duress, one of the uh, parents are, and then one of the parents are not. So I can just imagine how that works and why there's so much depression that we see among the youth. Right, 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 right. Uh, one of the key findings that I was um, really surprised by that we're talking about them being in a depressive state, that over 60% of the youth with major depression do not receive any mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and they say it happens even in states with the greatest access to mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that really says a lot that uh, we see these kids who have depression but are not even getting treated, just like we see adults who have mental health and are not getting treated. And so I think they play into both because if your parent is suffering mm -hmm. and not getting treatment, how are they going to then advocate for you to get treatment? Right. So exactly. I think some of that is going hand in hand. And then lastly, it says nationally fewer than one in three youth with severe depression receive consistent, which is the key word here, mm -hmm. mental health care. It says even among youth with severe depression who receive some treatment, only 27% receive consistent care. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really have to think about not only receiving treatment, but having to be consistent. Because as we know that when you are in um, care, that any break in that can then cause uh, all of the work that's being done to be undone. And so we want to not only ensure that patients, especially youth, are getting care, but that it is remaining consistent. Right, yeah. right, right. And so that's um, basically what we're going to talk about today. Everything that you that you just, you know, talked about jam-packed in, we're going to talk about, you know, um, the availability, the access, especially with youth. And we're going to talk about that, especially on, you know, a lot of colleges and university campuses. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, we're going to talk about the stigma behind that, because like you're saying, a lot of youth aren't um, getting treated for it because it's a couple of things, the stigma of it, because a lot of people don't want to talk about mental health and yes. you feel like it, it, it kind of um, is, is brought into their self-esteem and then their identity. They don't want people to know about their, their mental health condition or they're in denial. Um, also, you know, the family has a lot to do, you know, with, you mm -hmm. know, a treatment plan for them. Um, we're talking about, um, you know, discrimination, which we're going to talk about a lot of things, a lot of things, especially when it comes to mental health with the youth um, and going forth in the public policies that we're going to talk about. Um, okay. So, you know, as we look at those statistics that we've read for both the adults and the youth, you know, like, you know, you ask, you know, where do we stand in 2022 now in addressing these mental health uh, issues across these populations? What do we do now? Where are we going? And what are the solutions for the treatment measures? So, right. Right. So 
in the public policy of the MHA, they have a, a, a different, uh, what they call policy statements, and that covers different, um, different areas of mental health. Um, one of the things that, that stood out to me um, was one of the uh, public statements of policy number 32, which talks about access to medications. So, right. so one of the top reasons to, to the increase in mental illness is due to the challenges of access to their medications. So this particular policy statement um, of the MHA spe- speaks on these issues to access these medications. So what I actually want to talk about, if it's okay with you, Sabrina, I want to talk about the background of what I found um, in this policy statement. Um, that talks about the access to these medications. So where, yeah, sure. where the MHA stands, the MHA mostly recognizes that healthcare administrators are faced with the challenge of containing costs while maintaining or improving the quality of the care provi- that's provided to the consumers. But um, they also believe that these decisions should always be clinically based and reflect patient goals and that such best practice prescribing should provide long-term cost containment. Um, so, you know, what does that mean? It's, 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 um, you know, across different, um, you know, ethnic backgrounds, you know, the environment, um, there's a lot of education that's not there. Um, a lot of people who have mental health issues, they don't, they don't know what's available to them. Um, they don't know how, they don't know what their plan options are. Um, so a couple of things that the MHA has done is that they have called on the administration and the Congress to address these challenges, um, and they have a few of them here. Actually, it's, it's quite a few. I'm, I'll just read a few of them that I thought that stood out to me was, um, number one, there's an increased out-of-pocket cost, okay, which includes a shift to co-insurance. Now, for some of you who don't know, we talk about co-insurance. That's when beneficiaries pay a percentage of the cost of the prescription versus a fixed copay. Okay, so this can significantly increase out of, out-of-pocket costs. And then if you're in um, a low uh, envir- uh, environment, depending on where you live, I mean, that's hard. You know, a lot of them can't even afford it, even if they wanted to get um, access to their medications. Um, as, right. a, as a nurse in mental health, there are a lot of patients that continue to be readmitted over and over again because they don't have access to their medications. Therefore, their mental health condition t- uh, tends to decline. Mm-hmm. So they keep coming back. Um, a lot of that population, um, African-American males, um, Hispanic, Asians um, that I have noticed that have come back and a lot of the reasons why they're having issues because they don't have availability or access to their medications. Um, right. Also, um, there has been what they call an, an out-of-pocket cliff, which if not addressed by the Congress will result in beneficiaries paying $1,200 more out-of-pocket before reaching the coverage phase of the benefit. That's a lot of money. That's that crazy. is a lot of money, even for someone who is working and has money. It's like, ooh, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So because of this, this cliff will, incre- will have increased the catastrophe threshold from $5,100, which was in 2019, to now at $6,000. Wow. That's a lot of money. Um, also, a couple of things that stood out to me also was that lack of easy-to-navigate resources. Yeah, um, the plan options and opportunities to submit appeals and exceptions. So um, this also goes back to the education of knowing what your rights are, what your plan options are, what does it cover? What part of mental health does it cover? Does it cover therapy? Does it cover certain medications um, and what's available to them? Um, also, also, they have narrow formularies. They have fewer prescription drug options for low-income subsidy beneficiaries. So, you know, you're looking at all of these loopholes and these, you know, different disparities that's keeping 
um, ad adults in America from, you know, having access to their medications. Well, look at this. Even when you say lack of ease to navigate resources, explaining plan, plan options and opportunities to submit appeals and exceptions. Uh, I consider myself to be a highly educated individual in the United States of America. <laughs> and last year, I mean, I just want to put that out there. So last year, you know, I got really sick and it was so much that I had to learn just about trying to get right resources uh, through my insurance or just even beyond just to get treatment. And I was like, wait a minute, if I am educated in having all of this, <laughs> right, all of these problems and all of these issues, then how are people who definitely don't think like I do or think on the same level, how are they navigating it? And I really got concerned about elderly because some of the things I thought was just ridiculous. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have to get other educated people involved just to help you navigate, like one of my friends is a social worker. She actually had to find, uh, I think they're called like, oh my God, I'm not gonna remember. It's like a nurse. Um, it's like a nurse health provider. Anyway, it was a person specifically in the hospital that would help me navigate through with the doctors. Like what? Okay. Like okay. this exists? Like I didn't even know this existed, but right. she knew and she was able to help me get in touch with the one here. And I was just really mind blown at all of the things that I did not know mm -hmm. about how to navigate the healthcare system with my insurance, not even right. without any insurance. Yes. So that one really stuck out to me because I know firsthand that I've had to deal with that. Right. Uh, access is not uh, easy and it definitely is not equitable. So right. my gosh, yeah. Right, I'm glad you made that point because you don't really have to be in a low income area to not get access and everything because you really don't. I mean, I've had issues myself, you know, in the past where, I'm going into a doctor's office thinking that my insurance is going to cover certain things, you know, at a certain rate. And then I'm getting a bill in the mail that says you still owe this coverage. Right. So, and let me tell you, ever since then, no matter where, what job I've been through or whatever, I always call my insurance and say, do you cover this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you cover? You know, is this prior authorization? What is it? You know, because I said, I don't want to ever, you know, have to do it again. Even with my mom, you know, my mom's 90 years old, even with her Medicaid or insurance, I always call there's something I always call to make sure because plans change all the time. That's where they were talking about formulary changes. A lot of, you know, um, clients, they're not up to date with the formulary changes. So therefore, mm -hmm. you lose out, you know, unfortunately. So, right. So that's that's one of the things um, that I wanted to discuss also, too. Um, so with those in mind, um, you know, what is the MHA's call to action to all of this? Okay. Um, they have a couple of things that, um, that I did want to, um, stand out prior authorization. So when you go through prior authorization, it's, it's, it has become, um, a, a tedious process. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of paperwork just to get approved for a medication or approved from your doctor. And, you know, sometimes depending on the severity of your condition, they're going to need their medications, uh, you know, sooner than later. And sometimes mm -hmm. it can take days or a week just to get a prior authorization. So their call to action is for prior authorization to be timely and efficient so as not to delay access to medication nor to deter the prescriber from ordering medications that will have optimal benefits. That's very okay. important. And that's not just across mental health. That's across just the whole healthcare system. 
all you know gotcha. together. Um, so that's one good thing I saw. And then also when it says appeals and grievance procedures to be clearly disseminated to beneficiaries and be both accessible and timely. So my whole thing here is you know accessibility, timeliness. And find, trying to find a system to be able to where you can get your medications a lot faster than usual. Because what happens is people give mm-hmm. up. They're like, I don't have time for this. Right. <laughs> Especially when you work and you don't have time for it. You're like, right. look, I got other things I need to do. I'll call back is what normally gets me. Okay, I'll take care of this a little later. Because once you realize that there are so many things that you need to do, you then tell yourself, okay, I'll handle it later. And later, you know, you'll forget or it just ends up being the next week or the week after, you know, and by then, you know, you really in need of your care and your medications. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that being said, um, the Mental Health America Board of Directors has approved this policy and they approved it on March the 9th, 2019. So it will remain in effect for five years and is reviewed as required by the Mental Health America Public Policy Committee. So it expires um, December 31st, 2024. Good. All right. So then we know that we need to be on it in 2024, asking for this to be extended or another um, process to be put in place that still helps with prior authorization. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so that's, um, I'm trying to see if I have any other, um, because I want to give this website to, um, to pass off so people can actually go and read for themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but those are the ones that I really wanted to focus on when it comes to access to your medication. So I just say, just make sure that you are up and, um, you know, on your Medicaid, call your insurance, see what your, your, your options are, see what they cover, especially with mental health, because there's a lot of room for improvement when it comes to insurance and, and healthcare uh, for mental health. So I, I would recommend that. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you for that, LaShawn. I know as we were talking, I did say, oh, um, I was really uh, liking all of the position statements. But then I was wondering, like, well, how does this, you know, affect us when we talk about um, broader issues? Like, mm-hmm. are there uh, broader issues that mental health um, policies and um, position statements are we talking about those? And when I thought about that, I saw that they had position statement 73 that talked about college and universities' responses to mental health crisis. And of course, being a college professor, I was like, okay, now we're talking <laughs> because right, it's right. in my wheelhouse of, you know, uh, it's where I am, you know, mm-hmm. basically 20 hours of my day is spent thinking about the college environment and my students. And so um, just looking at mental health, I do know that it takes place on a college campus and it needs to be addressed. So looking at it, the Mental Health America Association did uh, have a policy about it as well as they had some positions on it. Uh, So the call to action that they wanted to take was that college and universities should provide a variety of mental health resources to proactively reach students where they are. Mm-hmm. which I thought was very important. Uh, it access students and they encourage students with a history of mental health to discuss and disclose the concerns with strict confidentiality and work with the college to create a plan for transitioning to campus. And I was like, wow, awesome. has anybody thought about that or done that before? Because I've never heard of it. And I've worked as a 
at Emory as a sophomore advisor and a residential advisor. And I don't clearly recall, but it was back in the 90s, if we had anything like this where we actually had a plan of action if a student had mental health that allowed them to transition to campus uh, to, so that we knew and they knew and that they felt safe on campus. So I think that is really something that um, is important for us to have. Right, exactly. I And I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, and um, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say is that um, it's also near and dear to my heart, too, because, you know, I do have a special love for youth and right. also with, you know, with behavioral health. And actually, this part of the segment is kind of exciting for me because I want it. It really is because, you know, with my love for behavioral health and for the youth, I want to make sure that you know, they're getting the help that they need because you think about it, you know, you think about the youth and it's like, you know, they really don't have to do anything, but just go to school and study. Nah, right. <laughs> you would, you would think they don't have to pay any bills. They don't have the stress that new adults have, but you would be amazed that they do have a lot of things going away. It's, it's more than just peer pressure. And when you're talking about students on colleges and universities, they have a lot of, you know, things and, and pressures on them that can, where, where mental health or depression can manifest. Right. Right. And no, so, so one of the things that I like was that they want to provide education and training for yeah. students, resident advisors, and even uh, teaching teachers and administrative staff so that students can uh, know where they can go, uh, that people understand the signs of mental health conditions right. or when right. they see something like self-harm or they realize a student is at suicide risk uh, and so that they can be important them to the right uh, resources, and also just have an emergency procedure in place to follow in case of a crisis. And I think all of that is important. Like you're saying, you have a heart for the youth, and we all do, but we also need to be educated on how to help when we see everything, and I'm sorry I have to do this to our community, but everything just can't be, I'm a pray for you. Like people need tangible works of action. Yes. Thank you for saying that, Sabrina, because that's true. It is is true because, and you know, not to, you know, us, you know, we are Christians. We believe in prayer. Prayer is real. It definitely helps, but mental health is also real too. Just like my mentor always said, there's nothing wrong with Jesus and a therapist. Hey, right. say that again. Mold them, mold them <laughs> together. You can definitely mold them together. The Lord put therapists on this earth for a reason. It's so okay. it's okay because it is real. It's a real thing. And I'm so glad that you said that because it's more than just saying, you know, I pray for you, whatever. And and I and I'm excited because a lot of these college universities are starting to put things in place for college students and mental health. And I think they, you know, it's, it's time to also capitalize on that on the campuses and just put it out there, you know, not, you know, not, you know, not just um, signs for mental health counseling, you know, do some type of workshops, you know, every now and then, or just to kind of make it more aware that you can get help on, you know, while you are there, you know, And look, one of the things that I saw that I was really excited about too, and I know we just keep saying we're excited, but we are, is that um, one of their call to actions was for uh, there to be a partnership with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, uh, the college administration and student groups to develop and promote inclusive mental health resources. And I think this is really important because, uh, you know, in certain groups, mental health disorders is stigmatized, as you mentioned earlier. And so it's a lot of not seeking uh, any treatment because 
it's a stigma to just even have a mental health disorder. Right. And I think by including the DEI departments that we then begin to not only look at mental health as this just broad, flat surface, but that it is definitely three-dimensional and it has a lot of uh, hills and valleys in it, depending on what um, culture this person is from. And so we do have to think about that when we're creating procedures and, um, like, as you said, workshops for the students to benefit from. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And some of the things um, that MHA has um, for the call to action, just like you said, is to provide the mental health service and services and have no out-of-pocket, you know, cost to the students. Of course, it would be, you know, no out-of-pocket cost. But also, um, there are a few things that I just really loved here where they talked about including programs in, in their orientation that discuss the available mental health services, including mm. support services on campus and in the community with students and their families. Also, um, and that I actually do love that. And also, this is another one where they say creating a voluntary program to include the families of the students in their counseling services where family access to treatment is within the sole discretion of the student receiving services. And so I think that's very important too, you know, when your child is there on a college campus, it's very important to, you know, be a part of that transition plan, you know, right. that you have on the college campuses, um, which is really great. And also creating student-led peer support programs in partnership with the campus um, counseling centers and also offering on-demand teletherapy services. Yes, I saw that. And I was like, now that's a winner right there because I can see, and especially with students being so plugged into their phones and wanting to handle more things on the phone than not, I think that's really a great idea to just have, like I can dial this number and I'm immediately with a counselor on my phone and able to talk to them. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, it's just opening up another door for them to, you know, be able to get the service that they need instead of, you know, thinking there's only one way to get help, you know? Right. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. Um, And some of the things that um, the policies are already also put into place to um, keep them from experiencing the stigma and discrimination. So um, they talk about like, for instance, you know, allowing the students to take a reduced course load or complete alternative assignments, because when you're going through, you know, mental health, you know, sometimes putting a lot of pressure on them, you know, the course load can actually um, can exaggerate the mental health condition where it's this anxiety or depression or whatever it is. Maybe they need a smaller course load, you know, mm-hmm. kind of help them in that. Also, um, they're talking about allowing the student to, you know, change roommates or rooms. And I know, Sabrina, I know when you were in college, I know you were an RA yourself. So you saw a lot of, you know, exactly. um, right, you know, conflict. Conflict is, is um, difficult for, you know, students to deal with, especially when they're having, you know, mental illnesses. So, you know, just being open to doing whatever, you know, they need to do for that student. Yeah. And what you're talking about is just giving students some type of accommodations. I deal with the accommodations department all the time in my class. Like I'll have students, you know, and you have to have, of course, uh, documented from a physician the issue, but then I'm able to accommodate them based upon that. And so I think having the accommodations department be a part of a student mental health is really serious. Um, as you just said, just allowing them to 
uh, postpone or their assignments or reduce their course load right. or change right. a roommate, just right. knowing that all of these are available to me when I'm in a depressive state or right. if I am having a mental health episode, that the, that the school itself is not going to penalize me for right. just being me and who I am and having my issues. Exactly. So I really uh, appreciate you bringing that up. And I think it's something... Um, that I actually probably want to ask about our accommodation department because mm-hmm. I haven't, but it's something that's really needed to be looked into. Because, you know, because a student will talk to me personally about things, I might on my own decide that, okay, I can, you know, extend it a couple of days. But having that as a part of the accommodation services at a university would be even more beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, just by us talking about, you know, these different call to actions, you know, that's why Sabrina, I saw so, you know, excited about it because I, you know, and I don't know about you, Sabrina, but I know when we were both in college or whatever, I don't even remember a lot of these things in place Mm -hmm. or even mental health being brought up, to be honest with you. I don't. No, I remember telling you the story that I was a, a RA, a resident advisor, and I just knew another student in a dorm had hung themselves. And it was like, first of all, it was more like a rumor. I don't even know if I remember that the Res Life Department told us. We might have. We may have gotten a, just a blank statement and said if any students needs, you know, to talk uh, the, what, counseling services available. But I just remember, I thought about that a lot. And it had to affect me because I still know about it today. And I can still remember the thought and thinking about the dorm and the student and them just there and I was like, what was so wrong that they had to, you know, they saw that as the only way out. But even then, I just don't remember there being a lot offered to us as resident advisors so that we could see, understand, educate, be educated and understand what those symptoms look like. So right. we could help a student on our dorm floor mm-hmm. or even uh, for the students who had to either witness that or be friends with the person that did that to themselves and you know other than going to the student counseling service like what else is there and so right. yeah exactly. exactly yeah so definitely not something that was really talked about then but definitely has to be talked about now now yeah because it has really definitely increased you know based on you know our, of the of the 22 key findings and the stats that we talked about and being you know just within the last two years of being in a pandemic the pandemic really um, really was, was a fire starter for, for mental health. Girl, say it that. Really was. A fire starter. It, it really was. And, you know, just like I said, you know, what I see, you know, in, in just in the hospital where I work, you know, it's, I mean, we barely have any beds, you mm. know, I mean, there are so many people in the ER and, you know, who are waiting for a site bed because we continuously, it's like a turnover all the time, all the time. And um, and trying to be able to get them out to an outpatient facility, you know, and talking about the state of Alabama in particular, it, you know, they only it's only one. When I say one, maybe two, they're going to open up another one. But one hospital in the state of Alabama, I think, with like 150, not more than 200 beds for the entire state of Alabama, that you have to op- wait and op- for a bed to wait to uh, open up. Hmm. Um, even one of our units, the, we have a couple of patients who are are slotted to go there, but they're like number 22 on the wait list. We have had people in that unit, on that particular unit, for a year. A year. Yes. It, it, it's, it's, and, I, and I do believe, you know, for the state that they're doing some things to improve 
um, to put money into, you know, mental health, uh, mental health care, which is a good, a good thing. So, cause we need it. Yeah. Well, one of the last things, uh, and I'm gonna get off my soapbox on college and university, but, um, one of their, uh, call to actions is that policy should limit liability for colleges and universities to encourage proper protocols. Mm-hmm. Mental health service should operate in a way that puts the students' needs first and yes. not the college's liability concerns. And I mm-hmm. think that's very important. Yes. Uh, one of the things they said was to create re-entry programs for returning students that will help students build an action plan for academic preparedness, continue wellness and a connection to their community. And I think that's truly where we're putting the student needs first. We understand you had a mental health episode, you had to, you know, take some time off from college, but as you're coming back, because we know now that there is a mental health issue, let us get some type of uh, re-entry program together for you so that you can be successful and continue on with your um, educational uh, degree. And so I think that's going to be really important moving forward, um, that colleges just really need to put the students' needs first. Um, and I think that will create a greater uh, college campus, a more, oh, hey, inclusive college campus. Right. Uh, again, bringing it back to why DE&I uh, offices need to be a part of this conversation as well and this plan of action. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and, you know, in conclusion with that policy statement, you know, given the large number of students with mental health conditions, um, attending college and universities and importance of higher education for individual society it is vital that these institutions develop these policies, um, mm-hmm. which are designed to help allow the students to participate fully in their mental health care. So um, I'm glad that, you know, Mental Health of America is actually on board with this. And it seems like there are a lot of colleges and universities who are also going to be on board with this, too. So hopefully we can be able to, in the future, you know, look at these key findings again, and we'll see a lot of decrease. Right. And this has been uh, approved uh, March 9th, 2019. Uh, These call to actions and the expiration date is in December 31st, 2024. And so we'll again come back hopefully and see that there has been some improvement on college campuses when we were talking about mental health in student populations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And well, Sean, uh, I mean, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, you know, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> um, I wanted to share, if I could, um, Dr. Walker. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, about uh, President Biden had um, his State of the Union. I think that was March the first. Right. It was March the first, and um, he was announcing his strategy to address the national mental health crisis, um, which I thought was phenomenal. And um, it's actually you can actually look this up if you you know Google the fact sheet President Biden to announce a strategy for national mental health crisis. Um, mm-hmm. but the- Things that I just wanted to just um, go over some of the things, a couple of things that he talked about, which um, I thought was very good, um, is that, you know, he was saying about how our country faces an unprecedented mental health crisis among people of all ages. Uh, two out of five adults report symptoms of anxiety or depression, and Black and brown communities are disproportionately undertreated, even as their burden of mental illness has continued to rise. Right. So there, he's very concerned, especially with, you know, the minority population as well. 
and how much mental health has has grown in the area. And also, he talks about the youth mental health crisis has been um, accentuated by large social media platforms, which for years have been conducting a national experiment on our children and using their data to keep them clicking around with enormous, you know, consequences. And, you know, we know that um, social media just, you know, across the board has be, has uh, become big when it comes to depression and anxiety. And so right. it, and it's, very, it's very large in the youth. Um, so it was a couple of things that I saw that um, he wants to do um, in this. Number one is to promote the mental well-being of our frontline health workforce. Hey, you, okay. Okay, so I have to read this one. Three quarters of frontline healthcare workers report burnout, while more than half say they lack adequate supports to cope. So the administration has already dedicated $103 million to American Rescue Plan funding to address burnout and strengthen resiliency among healthcare workers. So okay. um, which I thought is very important because the burnout is real with healthcare workers. Okay. Yes. And the fact that it does take a toll on your mental health. And I know a lot, especially a lot of nurses, social workers, we're burnt out to the point, yeah. where, you know, it, it really does essentially, I know a, a few, you know, some nurses probably more than that who, who suffer from anxiety and depression because they're so burnt out. So when I was, go ahead. Actually, I just, uh, you know me, I'm a big TikTok fan. And so I follow a couple of the nurses uh, on there and they talk about this all the time just a lot of the situations that they're put in and just for me you know they do the story time but I'm stressed just listening to the story so I know if I'm the nurse in it that's even 10 times more stress so yes this exactly. has definitely uh, especially being in this pandemic and we were so uh, um, in need of frontline workers and so dependent upon them that a lot of stress took right. place and so definitely have to focus on that now i do exactly and i know this one is going to definitely be near and dear to your heart another um thing that biden wants to do is expand access to mental health support in schools and colleges and universities hey. so, so there it is i mean you know we have the most important thing of this is having the government on board with this okay yeah so that's what um that he said that the, he said he's committed to doubling the number of school-based mental health professionals, which is what we need to, to, to be on the college campuses to be there to help and also mm-hmm. increase in, in social workers and in counselors. So he definitely wants to um, try to do that as well. Um, let's see, it's a couple of things. And one last thing, to stop discriminatory algorithmic decision-making that limits opportunities for young, for young Americans. Um, so when young people are treated unfairly, it can have mental health impacts, including anxiety and depression. And we must ensure that platforms and other algorithmic enhanced systems do not discriminatorily target our kids. And there we go right back to DE&I, to diversity, equity, and inclusion offices on campuses and just in companies and just period. They need to be in schools as well. And I don't think we've gotten to that point yet to have one in your public school but definitely because kids are treated differently. Like, you know, I, and I'll just have to say this and then I'll move on. When I realized that my son was having issues and that it wasn't just something that he was bad, but that there was something going on, I had him test for ADHD and show that he had it. He was on the low end of the spectrum, but he did. No teacher wanted to believe that because they decided, you know, um, that he's an African-American boy and he couldn't have anything wrong with him other than he was just bad. Now, his counterpart 
could have everything in the world wrong with them and it was accepted and all of the accommodations that were needed were given but I had to walk through fire brimstone and loopholes in order to get him even to be perceived as having it even though we had paperwork and get him any type of accommodations that he might need so that he could be successful so that just says that culturally people make a decision about who we are and then decide can't possibly have this because we are this race so move on to the next right and that's so unfortunate but it is true you know and I'm talking about my lived experiences no one else's so please don't come with the oh you know you're being biased Dr. Walthall I'm just telling you from what we live through with a child, a young African-American male. So I just want to point out that we really need to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion when we're talking about mental health, and especially when we're talking about IU. So I'm glad to see that President Biden has that on his radar. Right. And so I just, I couldn't, um, you know, go, you know, conclude the podcast without, you know, pointing that out that, you know, we, you know, we talk about these things, we talk about the stats, we talk about, you know, what mental health, you know, America is doing to try to bridge the gap. And, you know, you know, I just couldn't leave that out about, you know, knowing, you know, that the government is on board with this and we're hoping to see some improvement. Yeah. Well, Sean, as always, I am just so thankful (laughs) for you and for you coming to begin the year off with us with the state of mental health in 2022, uh, the call to actions that, uh, that are being taken place by our uh, mental health association, as well as by the government. And so I think this pushes us forward into 2022, knowing what's being focused on, what's on the roster, and uh, hopefully we'll know things um, at the end of the year, how things went, what were some of the outcomes, and that we're in a better state. What we don't want to do is do the mental health report on 2023, and we still be talking about it. It increased from 2022. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like when we read that, I was like, "We, you know, better." Like we went through all of this, and we still, girl, no. So that's one of the things we want to see happen is that we see an improvement, absolutely, in our mental absolutely. health. Absolutely. Um, but here at the STEM Lab Podcast, we are here to educate. Uh, make sure that our listeners understand what's going on in the mental health community. And we're so thankful and just proud of you, LaShawn, for being an advocate for those who have mental illness and for bringing your work to the public sphere on this podcast to definitely make sure that others understand what you as a mental health advocate are dealing with. And that uh, where we are just in the America itself and what can we possibly do to make the changes uh, from medications to policies uh, to position statements, all of it. Uh, you are got your finger on the pulse and we're glad to have you as a collaborator here at the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Walther. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to have this, you know, quarterly spotlight that I can come on and share with people and um, you know, really, you know, highlight mental health because it is very important and it's never to put your physical health, you know, to the side because physical health is also very important. But, you know, mm-hmm. what I always have probably said on this, on this podcast is that, you know, wherever your mental is, your physical is going to follow. Amen. So it is very important to make sure that your, you know, mental health 
um, is, is taken care of as well as physical. And also before we end, I just want to just speak to especially a lot of parents who have, you know, children who are going to college or who are in college. This, the, the, the information we talked about today is not to uh, scare you and thinking that, you know, oh my goodness, my child's going, he's going to college, you know, oh my God, he's going to have mental health issue. No, this is just a way of awareness, just mm-hmm. be aware and also continue just to be, you know, uh, involved and, you know, what's going on with your, you know, your child, even while they're in college, where they're at mentally, emotionally, academically, all of it. And, you know, hopefully, like I said, the government will improve these things to get your child if they need that help. So, right. Yes. Well, we say those who know do. And so we have now put you in the know. So <laughs> your call to action, all of our listeners, is to do. So (laughs) make sure that you take this information and do something with it other than just listen to us, especially if you know that you have a friend, a family member, or anyone who's in your personal space that has mental health issues. Um, You can always contact the STEM Lab podcast and LaShawn usually has resources that we can get you to so that you can also then become an advocate for the person in your life that's dealing with mental health. All right. Well, girl, I think we didn't did it all today. Hey, we did. I think we did. Awesome. (laughs) Quarter one, quarter one. I know. So we can't wait to have you back for quarter two. Thank you so much for joining us today, LaShawn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.